for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome, everyone, to a special collaboration edition of Blue Collar Elk Hunting. On today's show, I sit down and talk solo elk hunting with my good friend John Stallone on his Days in the Wild podcast. I share my thoughts, strategies, and tactics from my 40 seasons of chasing elk. Y'all, enjoy the show, and if you haven't checked out John's podcast, please go check it out. He's definitely one of the best in the business. So there we go. Let's get this rocking and rolling. We're burning daylight. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by com, with your host, elk hunting coach, Joe Gillick. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons, doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today we're going to talk about uh, hunting elk solo, solo elk hunting. And I got the man... The myth, the legend, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I'd try one of your one of your guys. Is uh, who is who is that? Who's that that does that all the time? He does crazy intros yeah, like that. Yeah, you start, you're starting to sound like Gilbert. Man. Gilbert, that's it. Gilbert does that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gilbert is the legend maker, man. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's funny. I always get a kick out of that. He's he's a very animated guy. Oh, he's yeah, man. Uh, I tell you, yeah, that that guy, man, uh, got the heart the size of Texas, and but you just uh, you don't want to make him ornery, that's for sure. <laughs> he's a rascal. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So, uh, just quick rundown who you are, just so in case first time people tune in, never heard you, don't know who you are, living on the rock. Um, yeah, I. Joe Gillia, uh, I've been um, 
elk hunting now. This will be my 41st season. Backwoods country boy from the Carolinas. Came out to New Mexico in 1980. Took my first elk when I was, I think I was 20, um, back in the early 80s. And, um, man, the first time I saw one of those critters in the woods walking by me, I just knew I was home. And it's been a, it's been a relationship and an affair ever since, man. I've been, um, I'm a retired teacher and coach. Uh, I've also been a professional elk guide for over 25 years now, and um, I have an outfitter's license here in New Mexico just to be able to do what we want to do with our coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I've been, all I do is bow hunt. I've been bow hunting ever since I was, I don't know, I've been shooting a bow since I was six. So I've uh, I've been Chasing these elk up and down the hills in New Mexico for a long time, man. And I, I'm pretty fortunate in that I get the opportunity to, um, on the guiding sort of, I get to kind of see the full circle because a lot of times, you know, before I started guiding, when you're, when you're hunting in September, you know, you just see that September world and it, you don't put together all the behaviors and all the movement and the different things like that. But, you know, getting the opportunity then to be around those critters pretty much year round, um, hunting them from September all the way to February and then, you know, keeping an eye on them and having fun with them the rest of the time. Cause we live in elk country. I mm-hmm. mean, it's such an advantage. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Cimarron, New Mexico, surrounded by some of the top elk hunting ranches in the world. Um, and and I have the Valle Vidal, uh, which is basically the Yellowstone of New Mexico, as far as I'm concerned. And mm-hmm. right in my backyard here, just um, just gorgeous. So awesome. Um, yeah, that's I, I retired from teaching and coaching back in from coaching kids and sports back in um, 2015. Uh, the guys, my my crew that's with me now, as as my core and elk bros had been on me to start doing something with my knowledge set and and out of that came elk bros and um elk bros is um it's a celebration of everybody that uh, I've shared elk camp with and want to share elk camp with I don't care you know most of those have all been guys but you know our my daughter has hunted with me and uh you know it's just a tribute to those people that have been with me. And, and really my elk bro has been uh, Leroy Chavez, my brother-in-law who's been hunting with me and my hunting partner for, like I said, this will be our 41st season. So um, sometimes your hunting partner is, uh, it's, it's like a marriage in some ways, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the synopsis. I, I started elk bros back then and uh, we have elk bros adventures now. We are elk hunting coaches. We do the blue collar elk hunting podcast and all things elk. So that's pretty much it. So you're, you're uniquely equipped to uh, answer the questions I got for you. <laughs> to say the least. So, yeah. well, so I've been getting a lot of questions leading up to elk season here about solo elk hunting. Um, right. A lot of the stuff that we put out there is, you know, calling techniques but a lot of it kind of requires you know buddy tactics and you know so on and so forth and we haven't i mean i have before in the, on the podcast I, I actually did a podcast with cory uh not cory jacobson but rocky jacobson um mm-hmm. some years ago about specifically 
you know, solo hunting elk. And I just wanted to give you know, get a new take on it. Um, and not just direct people to that podcast. So that's yeah. kind of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Awesome, man. And, and it's funny because I, I coach people online using zoom and we're, we're coaching the hunt wars competitors now in our groups that are coming out. And I constantly have to change my mindset to team calling or team hunting because I have solo hunted for so long that my, my whole mindset is mm-hmm. as a solo hunter. I mean, because even as a guide, basically as a guide, you're pretty much solo hunting if you're off the shoulder of somebody, right? I mean, you're turning two people into one. And I see that happen quite a bit. And I think that's one of the reasons out there that uh, a lot of guys end up with that are hunting team end up with hung bulls because they really don't hunt team. They pretty much, you know, get themselves together too right. much, you know, right, right. and end up basically in a solo situation. Yeah. And I think a part of that is because everybody wants to be the shooter. So, (laughs) you know, everybody (laughs) wants the opportunity. Um, And I've fallen victim to that myself. And, you know, I think the other part of it, too, is like a security thing. I mean, and Mm -hmm. the camaraderie part. I mean, just like to be right there talking to each other. And, uh, I mean, there's a time, man, when when you have a bull going that if you're a team – that that shooter actually should be the one moving up and determining what's going to happen with that caller trailing, you know, but that's a whole other podcast, man. We're going to do solo stuff. Yep. So. Yep. yep. That's right. So let's start off by talking about the, you know, I mean, they may seem obvious, but what, the differences of solo hunting, uh, well, to buddy. Hunting. <laughs> well, the, the differences is, is that your setup um, is so much more critical because you don't have, I mean, when you're, when you're team calling, I could basically set up in an area where I just have good shooting lanes and leave it up to my caller to pull that bull by me. I mean, uh, I don't have to worry as much about being, you know, at, at that effective, uh, shooting range from a bull when he comes into a stop and scan spot, right? So, I really have to play, do a better job of hide and seek mm-hmm. when I am solo hunting, as well as I have to really understand. For me, the whole key in solo hunting is is basically how people use their calls, throw their calls, and 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 do that. I think just so many people would immediately benefit by throwing their calls behind them instead of calling out in front of them. You know, as a, as a solo hunter, I'm always thinking to, you know, I have to think, okay, I'm the shooter and the caller. So how do I convince this bull that I'm further back than I am and still put myself in a good shooting position? Right. So the only way I can do that is, is basically be where I'm in a tight setup where I'm screened or playing hide and seek. And I, I I was just telling somebody Yesterday, I think it was kind of like, you know, um, my daughters, when we used to play hide and seek in the house, man, I had to go through the hallway into the bathroom and look down into the cabinets under the sink to find them little boogers, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost the same thing. You've got to kind of make those elk come find you, come find um, visually what they're looking for, because that's exactly 
um, what they're doing to confirm. They want to confirm visually first. What they're not able to confirm visually, they're going to try to do it, you know, um, with voice. And their last sense they're going to use is going to be smell. And that's why it's just so critical for you to understand that visual concept. If an elk comes into an area mm-hmm. that he should see another elk because you've been throwing your calls out in front of you and they're bouncing and they're going out. And I mean, you can hear the volume that some of these tubes do, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you're doing that out in front of you, you're telling and you're convincing that animal that you're 40, 50 yards further out than what you are. And when they come in, they should absolutely see that animal there. So, you know, they're there, they're looking, they don't see anything visually where they should see something. They're not hearing anything because you're being silent, right? And they're not smelling anything because you've got the wind in your favor. There's three strikes, you're out. He's going to turn and he's going to go, you know? Or he's going to stand there for a little bit, hoping to see, hoping to hear, or he's going to then circle and try to scent check the area a little bit. So um, I think that's the number one issue that people have. Now, you can solve that by strictly turning and calling back behind you and trying to pull that bull in, um, or at to a point, you know, and I have a buddy of mine that always says, too, you got to know when to shut up sometimes as well, mm-hmm. right, and just let the animal come do its thing and come search for you. Uh, but... I, I would say that that's number one, the number one difference is how you deal with those calls. I'd say secondly, um, the calls and your setup. And we can go more in depth in that. Yeah, but I, we, I definitely want to pick the setup uh, apart. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Yeah, and I mean, we'll go more into the calling, more into the setup. I just want to like kind of break these areas down. I would say that it would be the calling, the setup. Um, I would be, I would also say, your your aggressiveness and recognition of when and how to move and making a dynamic setup as well out of that. Um, and I, I would say the other place that it changes a lot is that there's really a, 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 a heck of a freedom in solo hunting that there's not in team hunting. Because in team hunting, it's like I find myself a lot of times thinking about, well, what, how's this other person doing or how are they viewing this? Or are they able to keep up or, you know, are they going to go this distance with me? I mean, there's, there's these things that go through your mind that kind of limit sometimes your choices or control your choices, or there's another person adding to that conversation. Hmm. And when you're solo hunting, it's just you, you know, yeah. um, it, if, if you want to, you know, chase that critter up the hill and you blow it up there, well, well, heck, man, that's just on you. You're not, you know, you're not like having fried somebody else and then blow the situation and feel bad about it, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so yeah, that, I, I, I can see that. On a for me, like I, I don't know. I prefer buddy hunting over solo hunting any day, um, mm-hmm. in, in any situation, even if it's mm-hmm. detrimental to my hunting. Um, I just, I don't know. It's just a better, I mean, I, I've gotten, I shouldn't say better cause I've had both feelings where like, oh, it's a different sense of accomplishment when you've done it completely by yourself and got nobody mm-hmm. else to share that w- with. Um, 
but at the same time, you don't have anybody to share that with. And sometimes I feel like that outweighs the, um, I don't know, the, uh, the feeling. I no, guess. I hear you, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, 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 I love bouncing stuff off of people. I love, you know, having that, that person there with me. Um, now, uh-huh. the camaraderie I, part of yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Now, it has to be that, mm-hmm. that, that right person too. Like I don't like. I Absolutely. would rather. I would rather solo hunt than go hunt with somebody who's going to be, you know, uh, a lead weight or you know, somebody who's not going to contribute to the uh, to the situation in a positive. Well, see, way. and that's the big part of it. You know, when you team hunt, I mean, you know, like for myself. Now, Chad and I, we do a hybrid thing. We've been hunting buddies now for forty years. But we do a hybrid thing. I mean, we go and hunt together, but we head off into two different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in communication. And as, as things have gone, as years have progressed, you know, um, we do a lot more together than we do apart. Uh, I think part of that is, is just my, my hearing issue as well, you know, for, for long range elk on there. But, uh, I mean, I, you know, I still use the scenarios I do. If I, if I make an elk come look for me and come find me, mm-hmm. then, you know, uh, my eyes and my nose kind of make up for what I'm losing on that other part of it and my skill set. But the, the thing I think for the reason for solo for so many years, you know, that I've more affected because I was the caller, mm. you know, I was having to call critters in for myself. So, uh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, it, it's, t- it's, tough to to it's tough to go out there. Yeah, it's tough to go out there. You have to be with somebody who, and if you're fortunate enough to, that is at or near the same level of, uh, I guess, elk hunting experience and being able to call and all that stuff as you you are. Well, not just that. they got to have better. the same schedule. Yeah, that's you it. Know, yeah, of course. you got to yeah. have the like the same fitness, you know, basically, you know, I mean, there's depending on how damn demanding you are, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll tell you in my younger days, man, I was just so driven. I mean, it, I was, um, it's just so driven after these critters, man. And I'm still pretty doggone driven, but, uh, I can actually, like you said, now I enjoy, and after guiding for some years, I really enjoy seeing other people be successful. I've, you know, I've, I've done my thing and continue to do my thing, but it's really cool to see it happen for others and mm-hmm. to see that joy and to, have, to see that experience. Yeah. But yeah, I, to have a good partner is not, it's not an easy task. Most people that I talk to end up having a solo hunt at some point in time in the hunt because either, you know, the partner had to leave or they're having to come in later or, you know, that type of thing. So take an afternoon um, off, whatever. Yeah. 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 Got it. For sure. Right. Um, well, I guess let's, let's talk about how you approach it. And is it, is it different than like just even starting out when you're going out in search of elk, do you have, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you do something differently when you're with or or alone when you're with somebody or you're alone? Um, you know, I would, or is that part of the same? I'm more Forrest Gump, man. I don't, because when I'm by myself, uh, if I'm, if I'm feeling it, 
that I'm in the area or if I'm on animals or if I think I'm in great sign, man, I'm just dogging, right? Mm-hmm. But if I'm to a point where I, I'm hungry, I sit down and eat. If there's a point where I'm tired, I sit down and sleep, you know, for a couple of minutes. I'm, I just forest gump it when I'm out there and I just stay out there and I just stay on those critters. And I think that's a little bit different because, you know, when you're with a group or with other guys, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, they, you know, with my guys, they know me now and they know how I am and they know where I like to go and how hard I like to go. But, you know, with a lot of people, you know, they want to be back at a certain time or, you know, they'd like to have that good meal or they'd like to have that soft bed or <laughs> you yep. know, like that. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, when I'm by myself, it's, um, there's no distraction. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a focus on everything and where I'm going. I, I mean, I don't have anybody's voice in my ear. Um, I, everything about me is reading my senses. I'm going through and just really becoming part of that environment and not just going through it. I'm not a passenger going through it. I'm an observer. I'm looking at, you know, at this broken twig right here. Is this a scuffed rock right here? You know, am I smelling? What am I smelling? You know, uh, paying attention to the shadows, paying attention to the, the way the land is rolling and taking a look at where I plan to go and how I'm going to get there. And I can move as slow as I want. I can move as fast as I want, mm. you know. And I I take a lot of that now to that team thing, to that, you know, to the to the partner hunting, just because I have partners that know me and understand me. But well, that they that, probably said, look, they probably look to you, so they're going to follow your lead, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. I I feel like that's generally the case with me as well. I kind of mm-hmm. set the pace in most instances, uh, unless I'm hunting with somebody like you know, um, you know I went to hunt with Paul Medell last year, and you know, so I followed more followed his lead than mine, you know, that kind of, if I went, right. hunting, if I went hunting with you and follow your lead, not mine, you know, um, yep. it's just one of those situations, but yeah, I think, well, well I took, I'll, I'll give you an example. I took Manano and Luis in, into an area that I really felt was going to be a, a little hot spot, kind of isolated. And it was a, it was a little bit of a hike, you know, it wasn't really all that, what I considered, bad but um and it got a little treacherous coming back and stuff but we did get on out and we actually called in a bull that Luis um had a shot at and missed and actually thank god he missed it really but uh um and it, it wasn't because it would have been that tough of a pack out it's just that we would have packed it out in the wrong direction that we ended up coming out of the area and we ended up in some blowdown that became real real dangerous you know in hindsight now knowing after what we saw, I know how I would come out of there, you know. But after we got down and we got back to camp, you know, they were like, I ain't going back there. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and to me, I'm like, well, that's where the elk are, man, you know. And and if those boys say I'm not going back there, then the others are like, well, we ain't going either if those guys are saying that. Right, right, but, right. You know. So, yeah, sometimes it can be a little bit tougher, whereas, you know, I, I – by myself, yeah, I'd probably go back in there now. The problem is, is you go off and this was a place to go into that you had partners because getting that critter out of there would have been a bit of a hike. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know my crew would have ended up coming in after I get one down even if I'm solo. But 
Um, those are other considerations you have to have. When you're solo, you got to think about, okay, you know, how far am I going to go in? How much, you know, road access do I have? You know, because I plan on putting an elk on the ground, just like you do, John. Mm-hmm. And and when that bull goes down, that's when the work begins. So if I don't have a plan or if I don't have other people that I can depend on there, it's me and me alone. And so you had better know what your capabilities are. And not only just your capabilities, because, I mean, you might be somebody that can go back and forth and get an elk out three miles. Mm-hmm. But that's still a time consideration, and you've still got to deal with heat. you got to deal with sun. you got to deal with elements that could end up um, making that meat bad before you could get it out, even though you could do the packing in and out, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a solo hunter, you got to take in a lot more of that. you also got to plan on – you've got, you got to have other things because – you know, if something were to happen to you out there, what's your plan for that? Right. You know, um, you know, you, you can't be bear grillising it all over the place, jumping out of helicopters and over rocks and stuff like that, man. So you got to sure. pay a little bit more attention. But the way I do it, man, when, when I go out, when it's me, is that I'm somebody that likes to be out there an hour um, before gray light. So you're looking at almost two hours before shooting light, right? Mm-hmm. And I like moving in the dark. I like moving in the so. dark quietly, silently, listening to what's going on, taking it all in, enjoying that night, um, and, and really listening. And then every now and then, you know, I'm going to throw a little call out even in the dark to do that now. You've got to be careful with something like this because, yes, I've had times when, you know, all of a sudden I had a bull scream at me and he's only 100 yards away. And next thing I know, he's like in the dark, 20 yards from me looking for me, you know. So mm-hmm. that does happen. It's happened you know, to me. But, happened to me in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. I called us a little too early and he got there a little too fast. Yep. But, you know, it's you come onto a top of a ridge, right, and and you're just trying to – locate to see if something's down in the bottom just to get yourself so that you can if you get a reply back you're going to go ahead and cut that distance start putting yourself in position in the dark so that you're on that booger right away at daylight before they start moving up to go to bed so you know you you let out that you know that location bugle or you do i usually and i i cast call when i do things i always go near to far and so i do just a little mouth cow call just kind of yeah yeah you know type of thing and then if I don't get anything that sounds off anywhere near that can hear that, because you know how the night air is, man. I mean, sound mm-hmm. just carries, right? Yep, the, cold, so, and the colder it is, too. Yeah, and so the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do just like a, a single um, mew. And and I, I don't call it a cow call, but it's a mew because um, if you're early season, it can absolutely get a bull response because bulls mew back. I've, I've had bulls mew to me and come into me mewing. And killed bulls that, you know, all they ever did was mew. They never grunted. They never bugled anything. All they did was mew. So I, I throw out that single mew through my tube. It gives it a little bit deeper. I keep it just a little bit flatter and I listen for that response. If I don't get anything there, then I, you know, I throw out a location and I, I put that out there just to reach out and say, here I am. So you do something like that and you don't get a response and 
you move and move and you get to that new spot that you're going to cast call from because you're in another place where, you know, your calls are going to be more effective again from where you just came through. And next thing you know, man, you've got a response right off your, you know, just right out there real close in the dark. And that's where, that's where you just have to just shut up, sit down and just be quiet, man. And, right, and, and let hope. that booger get bored. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. But, yeah. but that's my thing is I'm out there. I, and after I give a call and, and I'm going to throw this out to people too, you know, even for the partner hunters, because when I'm soloing out there and I throw out a call, man, I'm listening, listening, listening. And I have to now, I mean, you know, um, there was a time where I could, you know, hear a, a mouse pee on cotton, dude, but it ain't the same now, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I got to really, really listen. And then, you know, when you're with a partner and you give a call out and then all of a sudden you hear, zip, you know, <laughs> go, 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 go. I'm like, what are you doing, man? You know, I'm, this is not rest time. This is not break time, man. This is, we're working here, you know, right, so... Right. Uh, so when I'm, when I'm solo and I'm out there, I, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm moving through. I'm, I'm hoping to get a sound if I can, you know, in the dark or get some kind of response that lets me know that there's an elk in the area. And I don't care how far away. If I get one that, that, you know, that he sounds like he's a mile away, three quarters of a mile away. Man, I've got it. I'm looking at my onyx. I'm figuring out where that is. I'm looking at the direction. I'm kind of pegging it down to give me an idea, and I'm taking off because I'm trying to get myself in the best position possible, and I want to be in position by gray light. I want to be able to start that interaction actually in the gray light, depending on how close, how far, right? Mm-hmm. I know I have to. I can't, I can't do anything until I have my, you know, my legal shooting time, but I can start interacting or getting eyes on or see something like that, right? So, um, it's not very far from once you get to gray light to shooting light. No. It just gotta have that happen. Right there, right there, for sure. Yeah. And so that's if I get something that does respond. So let's say I go through my morning and I get nothing that responds there. Well, now I'm in, I'm in mode. And I know that, you know, what are the elk going to be doing? I'm looking for travel corridors. I want to travel through those. And as I travel through those travel corridors, moving towards where bedding areas are, I'm hoping to cross an elk trail that is going to have either fresh track or I'm smelling something fresh or um, it's really dug up and I can tell it's well used. And what I'll do is I'll just get on that dog on trail and I'll just start, you know, Mohican sneaking through like that. And every now and then I'm throwing out cow calls, um, just trying to sound like a, a, a group of elk that's going through two or three as I'm doing that. And again, letting other elk that I might be going by, let them know that there's an elk in the area, hoping to either get a response or, or have them come into me silently. Because mm-hmm. as I'm moving, Again, I'm looking, I'm watching, I'm smelling, I'm using all the senses, I'm looking around. Every time I take a couple steps, it changes the angles, it changes the view. And I'm really listening for those things like broken sticks. I'm listening for uh, a foot, you know, hitting on a, a rock or on a log or anything like that. I'm looking to see any kind of twitch, any other kind of color. And 
you're like me, John, because you've been doing it so long that as I'm moving through, our eyes naturally go to colors or shapes out of place. Mm. I don't care what it is, man. It could end up being a rock or a log, but we pick it up. And if it is a rock or a log, well, no big deal. Your eyes are still picking that up, and that's a good thing. So that's what I'm doing as I'm going through there, right? And yeah. you know, I used to play a game all the time when I was younger in my 20s. It was one of those, like, it showed you two pictures. What you Can you tell what the difference is between the two pictures? Uh-huh. And that, oh, yeah. that yep. helped me. That helped me so much with that. What you're talking about right now. Um, yeah. Although lately, because my eyesight's going freaking shit, um, I'm having a much harder. Like I still hunting for me is really tough now because I feel like I get picked off way faster than I'm picking up animals. Uh, yeah. Movement's not a problem, but like the colors and shapes and all that stuff, they're just, I just don't have that clarity anymore. It sucks. Well, especially in the gray light, you yeah. know, cause you know, you're, you're, you lose some of that detail and stuff like that, you know, when you're there. I've actually had to, you know, as the years have gone, I've had to adapt to that just a little bit more before I move in on something and make sure that it's, you know, I've got, I'm ability you know, able to get details and able to get colors because, you know, I've, I've got to be able to pick out, see, recognize, and then, you know, make sure that I, you know, able to put a quality shot on it. So mm-hmm. there's some things that we have to adapt through. Yeah. But you know what, as you mentioned that I could see the exact same thing, you know, like when you were looking in those books as a kid and they, they hit objects and, you know, in a forest or on a farm and you had to find them, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yep. You know, the, in the photos. Yeah. And yeah, always loved those, man. Yeah, Maybe I used to kid. play like it was like a video game. Matter of fact, the one of the bars I used to go to all the time, we used to go sing karaoke. Mm-hmm. Had this machine, you know, you put money in, and it was timed. So you only had, you had to do it fast. You know, you only had whatever sixty seconds to five five different uh, differences mm-hmm. between one picture to the other, and you know, and there were identical pictures really, except for these five little nuanced things that are different and you'd have to figure them out. And I got very right. good at that. And I realized like, my this is freaking great training for what I, you know, yeah. with, with my hunting Absolutely. stuff, you know, but yeah. it, you even start to like, I mean, after years of doing this, your eyes have like a scan mode on how you look at certain areas or how you check kind of the, the things that are close because how many times have you come into an area and you're actually looking all the way across it to see if you see anything and you got a daggum cow or bull within 40 yards that, you know, ends up busting out on you because you didn't look from near to far. You didn't check the closest threats to the, yeah. the furthest ones. Yeah. Right. You know, that, that happens like that. But I, I think what I try to do too, and I said this the other day to some guys that, when I'm hunting, and if I didn't get on anything, didn't recognize where anything was in the morning, and now I'm going into hunt mode, now I'm going into search mode, I think my goal here, and the thing that I try to always tell myself is I never want to be hiking and hoping. Mm. If at any point in time you are just walking, hoping to run into an animal, then you're not hunting. And that's what I tell people is to really, you got to keep your focus to stay in hunt mode. 
you know, you're wanting to look for chat track. You're wanting to look for these trails. You want to get on those trails. You want to see where they're going. What type of areas are these elk going to? What type of areas are they coming from? Is it taking you to a bedding area? Anytime you're putting yourself into the locations where elk are, have been or are active, then you're putting yourself in position to be able to, you know, have an encounter. You don't want to be hoping for that. You want to be utilizing the best of your senses and what's available to make that happen, looking for that sign, putting yourself in those areas. Like, you know, if I don't find anything and, and I'm in an area, the best place to, to, to start from sometimes is a water source or a feed area. Mm-hmm. And then you go around that and you're looking for, well, how did they come into this? You know, how are they going out of it? Now you're reverse engineering and you're able to get on that and you're going to basically put yourself as one of those elk, leaving that food source, leaving that water source, and where are you going, man? And start doing that, you know, move on that. You you see another trail that's a little bit deeper dug that comes from another area, you know, jump on it, get with it. And I like to track myself when I'm doing that on my on my GPS as well. So I can kind of see where I am, where I've been, and make notes of certain things as I'm going through there. So this is kind of like my mode, but as I'm doing it, I am not being silent. Mm -hmm. I am calling, right? I am cow oriented when I, or calf oriented. And I think a lot of people really overlook the effectiveness of the calf orientation, Right. but you know, I'm absolutely doing that as I'm moving, actually sounding like a, a, a little small two or three group of elk as I'm doing it to again, get elk to come to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to hike and hope. I want to do things that are going to be proactive to bring elk to me. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the solo setup versus, okay. you know, uh, a, a buddy call setup, you know. If we mm-hmm. can kind of paint the line, the paint the picture of what's uh, what the differences are and what you're looking for. Let's talk about what you're looking for in a setup and how – so you got a bull bugle in. You, you can. Mm-hmm. I'll let you paint the scenario. Um, yeah. So, and and you know what's interesting is is I can paint a scenario here and I can kind of give you that, but each one of us are going to see that a little bit different according to the areas that we hunt right. in. Like, you know, I'm here in New Mexico hunting in broken pine and scrub oak. You know, guys are sometimes in you know aspen open meadow. Other guys are going to be just in tall pine that are pretty clear underneath of it, kind of like that Gila and like some of your areas up in Arizona that you guys are hunting. So we're all going to have a little bit different perspective. But one thing that I can tell you is we can just talk in terms of vegetation and terrain. Sure. And if we're talking in those terms, then no matter what, you can you can understand and put yourself in a good setup. And I want you to always think too, like anytime you stop to call, mm-hmm. anytime when you stop to location bugle or if you're stopping on a trail like I am and you're doing those cow calls, you are always wanting to basically be in some type of setup. Now it's not something where I've got a bull screaming coming and, and I'm looking for, you know, past release reason, blah, blah, blah. But I want to pay attention to things like, am I in shadows? Am I kind of broke up here? If I have something that came in on me right now, you know, am I ready for that? So anytime that you are conversing as an elk, 
and trying to bring elk to you, you have to realize that that's what you're doing and make sure that you're prepared for that. Now, if we're talking about the traditional setup, like and I'm moving through and I have a bull that is talking to me and, and I basically know that that bull, because that bull has said something and he's talking again, he's now closer. I know that bull's coming in. So now what I'm looking for in my setup is I'm looking for, okay, where am I at on the terrain compared to where that bull is coming from? Is there between me and that bull, is there any change in elevations? I mean, is that bull below me? Is that bull above me? If that bull is below me, at what point is that bull going to come up and should be able to see the elk that he's conversing with? Mm -hmm. Because that is what I call the stop and scan spot. That is where the bull is going to come in. He's going to stop and he's going to be looking for that animal. I want to be within my effective shooting range of that stop and scan spot. Now, if that stop and scan spot is after he's coming through some thick brush, then I'm looking for other things. Like if I'm moving up to where that bull has to find me by coming through that brush, I definitely want to be within shooting range of that. I would like the thickest of that brush to be in front of me if possible. And and now what I'm doing is when I'm doing my setup, I want to be within 30 yards of that, 40 yards of that, my effective range, Mm -hmm. okay? And once I'm getting in the position I'm doing that, I want to make sure, and these are the things that cause failure points. It's when people do their setup and they don't put themselves in the best position to have shooting opportunities, to have clear shooting lanes, because they end up hiding behind things. They get behind trees. They get behind brush, and they limit themselves. You absolutely want to be in front of things just broke up behind you. And now as that as that animal is in front, you are looking and trying to figure out, you're playing the game. Where is the path of least resistance? Where are those areas that that bull is most likely to come through? You know, what, where are those shooting lanes? Do I have that shooting lane at it? Yeah, I'm setting my body up because foot position is so important. Or in my case, knee position, because most of the time I like to be down on my knees just because of you know, how our trees grow. They, they, they're kind of clear until about four or five foot up. So I like to be down when I'm doing that. And I want to actually put my shoulder pin on where I think is the most, um, the, the shooting lane most to my right because I'm a right hand shooter. So I'm going to adjust myself to that right because mm-hmm. if I have a bull that ends up coming into my right and, and I'm, not in the right body position for that. You won't be able for to me turn. to turn yeah. and get that shot. Yeah, it exactly. takes me out of form, right? Yep. So I would rather be. I can stay in form, turning almost completely behind me. You know, if I, you know, if I'm in the correct position there, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at that. I've got everything cleared around my knees. I'm, I'm listening and looking for that movement. I'm listening for that footfalls. I'm doing. As I'm doing that, I'm checking my elbow to make sure that I don't have anything when I draw back that's going to cause noise, right? So or cams doing... and branches or any of this stuff, too, that yes, sir. could happen. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. yep. I'm clearing everything around my knees because if that bull does end up coming a certain way and I absolutely see and know how he's coming, I might be doing just a little bit of a knee crawl as I do that, just turning a little bit as I do that and get myself in good position get myself so that I'm kind of lined up in his eyesight, you know, just perfectly with my bow already set to where that bull is. Now, I'll tell you 
for me, one of the biggest differences between me and most people is, um, is my, my tube. I hunt with a flexible tube Mm -hmm. and I have a flex tube that I'm able to have it's on me so that I've got the mouthpiece just right here. I can just bring it up right to my mouth. Um, if that animal is coming in and I don't have to make any noises, I'm able just to push it down and my hand comes right up into shooting. I mean, if you were to look at me from the front, you would see my bow in front of me and you would never see my tube because my bow screens everything. I'm able to pull that tube right up to my mouth. I'm able to call and throw calls behind me if need be. And I would tell you that that is probably one of the biggest secrets to my success hmm. is that when I have elk, even if I have a bull that comes in, he's 80 yards out, and that bull, because a lot of times when they come up and over that stop and scan, they know that there's an elk in that area, but they might not have you exactly pegged, and so they might actually start going off, and let's say I'm I'm looking out in front, the bull came up to my on my right a little bit, is walking across out of range, and he's going to go look for me in a spot that I'm not. And I know that I'm getting ready to lose that animal. Well, I'm able to take that, uh, my, my grunt tube and I'm able to go ahead and take it. I call in, I call my tube the soloist. It's, you know, it's what I'm producing now. Mm -hmm. Um, strictly made for solo hunters. And I take that soloist and I turn it opposite. He's going to the left. I turn it back and I throw a little cow cough just to bounce it off the trees behind me. You know, 20, 30, 40 yards, wherever they are, I'm throwing that sound that way. I have literally steered Elk John into me doing that. Hmm. I've had them go in the wrong direction, and I'm like, it's a correctional call, basically, that I throw out there. And the cool thing is, if I was to do that with my mouth, just like this, and just, yeah, right. I'm pegged, right. right? They're going to know, yeah, it's coming but, right from you. Yep, exactly. Yep. Exactly. But by doing that and throwing it back behind me, all of a sudden that bull stops, looks, and it's like, hmm. And because I'm throwing it back into the trees, here he comes, right? And I've done this time and time again. I think that is one of the big things that makes you successful as a solo hunter is being able to use calls as if you were in a team by throwing calls back behind you. And and you guys can most definitely do that with a with a bat style too. You just got to turn until your body they out. get within. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until they get into that. You There's know, definitely 80, more movement. 60. Yeah, definitely more movement yeah. involved in doing that. Um, and even yeah. cupping your hand and throwing it behind you, it's a little effective, but not nearly as effective as it coming out of a tube like you're doing. Um, I yeah. do. I do well, want to clarify something that you said that was really important, and I just so it doesn't fly over people's heads when you were mm-hmm. in your setup, you mentioned having your point shoulder, um, which is the shoulder that's holding the bow uh, yep. as a right-hand shoulder shooter. Your, that's your left shoulder pointing right. in the direction of your most the right, animal, the, the most right-hand. Uh, most right, correct. And yep. the reason for that is as a right-hand shooter – and obviously this is the exact opposite for the left-hand shooter, is Mm -hmm. you can't twist to the right that much more than what you're at. Nope. Not without breaking form. You can turn to the left, like, 
I mean, most people could at least go 90 degrees, but some people could go almost mm-hmm. 180 degrees, you know? Um, or maybe not 180, but 120, you know? And that's a lot of movement. And this is something, what you're saying, that I, I implemented a lot in my setups or implement a lot in my setups when I coyote call, when I bow hunt mm-hmm. coyotes. This this idea of of what you're talking about is very much uh, the same principles that you use for that. And that's I just want people to get that visual because I don't know if we – you said it. I called it right away, but I was like, ah, maybe other people aren't on the – picturing that so if you were to get yeah. down on your knees okay put your bow yep. arm out see how far you can turn to the left and then see how far you can turn to the right and then absolutely think about that when you're setting up because how many times you get in a position where oh crap i can't crank myself over and i don't really have the ability or he's looking in my direction so i can't really move my body you know then you kind of get into a situation where you can't make the shot which sucks right so. And I, I'll tell you another thing that happens to us as solo hunters a lot is we get caught. I mean, it's nice when everything happens that, you know, you got an animal coming over or down and you see horns and you can draw and, you know, and they never see you or they, you can see horns as they're starting to move through thick brush and get drawn before they pop out. That's always awesome. I think where a lot of people freak out and fail is when they end up having an elk show up at 40 yards and they don't have their bow pulled back yet. And so now they're, you know, they're racing through their mind. They're like, okay, when do I draw? When do I draw? How do I draw? Um, is he going to get his head behind that tree or, you know, and invariably most people make the biggest mistake ever in trying to draw when an elk puts their head behind a tree. I mean, that, that critter, I mean, if there's a single tree there, even if there's two side by side, now if you have a, a screen of trees, three or four foot that they're going back behind. Yes, you can get that motion as long as you don't make any noise. Because I guarantee you, if you make a noise, they're stopping. If they hear it, mm-hmm. they're going to stop and they're going to turn. But that's why I, I'm telling you, after so many, after 40 years and a lot of elk, um, I mean, I've between guiding and hunting myself, you know, thousands of animals that I've been able to see opportunities on i i learned you know so many times it happened to me early on john i did the same thing bulls coming across don't put his head behind the tree i draw what happens the bull comes out his you know his head comes out on the other side before i finish my draw sees the movement and what do they do do they blow out no no they, they don't they stop before you can't and, shoot and, yeah yep. stops and looks at you with a dog on tree exactly in the kill zone right so, I mean, after this happens so much, it's like, okay, why am I doing the same thing and expecting a different result? Mm-hmm. So it was just like, well, I'm just going to wait till that booger steps into the open before I drive. If he's going to stop and look at me, then let's see what happens. And sure enough, that is their fatal flaw. They will stop and look. Now, sometimes they will booger and then you cow call and then they'll stop and look. They might go, 10, 15, 20 yards, but they are going to stop and turn broadside. That is their fatal flaw. They turn broadside to stop and look. Right. So anytime that you have an animal coming in, you're solo, and you don't know, you're like, well, when do I draw? 
Well, you draw when that animal is going into your shot window. When that animal is in your shot window, you draw because he is going to stop and look at you. Now, there is a chance that animal is going to booger. But as soon as he does, you cow call because he's still going to want to see what did that. He sees movement. He hasn't smelled anything. You know, he sees movement. He is not sure what that is. So if I throw out a cow call right away, you know, he's like, oh, okay, is that another elk? Because now he's seen movement, he's hearing the sound, that changes and it confuses and then they have to look. So you play to those weaknesses when you do that. But I would say that that is one of the, probably one of the main things that separates a lot of people that end up killing an animal and not killing one. Because mm-hmm. they just don't know what to do and how to close the deal when, as a solo hunter, when they get in those situations. So yep. I think that's one of the things that separates that out. Agreed. Um, on that note, if you have to point your bow up in the sky to draw it back, you're out of luck. You're probably overbowed, number one, but number two, you're making a lot more motion. So, absolutely. And, and you're practicing now, practice having your arm pointed at the elk and drawing just in that, you know, with as minimal in that movement, motion, minimal movement as possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we actually really got to painting the picture of what the setup looks like. So let's, we started talking about okay. it, but we keep adding details to, to, yeah. Cause, yeah. cause there's so much, so, there's so much going on, but yeah, I mean, because there's so many variables, you know, mm-hmm. if, if I'm, like I said, if I'm in that kind of open pine and I have, and, and I'm determining between me, is there a change of terrain? If there is a change of terrain, I'm going to get where I'm in my effective shooting range of that. I'm going to get in front of something so that I have Good shooting lanes at where I think the paths of least resistance are for this animal. Elk are always going to go through the path of least resistance. All right. If there are elk trails that you see that you, that are coming into an area, set off to the side of that. Don't set up in front of it. Set up off to the side of that because you're going to end up with a frontal shot. And then you got other decisions you have to make. So you want to get in a position so that you are in front of stuff. Um, whether you're down on your knees, whether you're standing up, you just want something breaking you up behind you, and you want to have whatever that change in terrain or what that screen is within that effective range. And as you're doing that, you want to peg, okay, where are my shooting lanes? Where are the possibilities that animal come in? That's where we're setting our pin shoulder at that point in time. That's where we're clearing everything that's happening around us. And then I love the change in elevations. I really like that because you get the, an opportunity mm. to see those horns before they actually step into the open, right? My, fa- so, my favorite uh, setup is having like a little rise in between you and the elk. Like, yeah. Even just, right. like just a Absolutely. little hill. Just, yeah, just, a, just yep. enough to cover uh, you kneeling down even is fine. Like, cause yeah. they start coming up the other side and they get to the top. And once they're at the top, they're, you know, they're right there for you Stop to Stop and them. scan. Yep. Yep. Stop and scan. Because what, what, and what that little rise does is it creates an area that that animal is not able to see, an area where he just heard elk coming from, an area that he's going to to see other elk. So he's going to come all the way through to that. Now, again, if you are throwing calls behind you, not only is he going to come to that stop and scan spot, but most likely now he's going to keep walking forward. He's not just going to be there because he still thinks that that animal is a little bit further back behind you. I I really like to do things situations. One of my favorite 
to do, John, is is to have my a bull off to my right and then throw my calls off to my left mm. so that that bull actually comes across my face looking for that sure. other animal, especially if if I have a drop on my left that drops down into anything to throw those calls, you know, with my tube down into that. So they kind of reverberate down there mm-hmm. is just killer, man. I mean, that's some of those dream situations that you get. But I've gotten that a lot, even like um, if you have an animal that's down on another level, instead of calling directly behind me to bring him straight to me, I will go ahead and try to throw it to the left so he angles up that 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 ridge and comes up at an angle going across in front of me instead of directly coming up to see where I'm at or if I'm throwing it back behind me. So mm-hmm. I really like to force him to cross my face if possible. That's something that I really like to do. Um, that, that, again, stops some of that um, frontal decision type of stuff that you have to do, mm-hmm. right? Because if you if you have an elk that's in front of you and you're throwing your calls directly behind you, yes, you're bringing him. And in some situations, you're not able to, to not do that. But if he's coming and you see that, then you can actually do the same thing that you might have a shooter do. You can actually, you know, go to your right some so that when that bull does come, it's not going to be a frontal shot. So it's going to give you a, a, a better angle at that animal. Now, the other thing, I talked about changing terrain. Well, let's say about, you know, um, change in vegetation. Mm-hmm. I want to, I, I think of it as hide and seek. I want to be able to put myself in a position where that animal has to come around something or through something to be able to find me. So just like my daughter in that, in the, in those cupboards underneath the bathroom sink, man, I have to keep looking in order to find them. And that's what I want to do. And by having that thickest stuff in front of me, it's going to help give me a better angle as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I might even catch flash of the horn as it's moving through, as it's coming to the side, and it's going to help me as far as my drawing. Whereas right, if I'm more setting up and yeah, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Don't give me that more, you know, make me more concealed. So think of it as, you know, there's so many people that, that when they're elk hunting, they want to see the animal so bad that they put themselves in a position where they do. They see the animal at 100, 120 yards, 80 yards. They can see that bull coming. Well, it's great for seeing elk, but it's horrible for killing elk. Mm-hmm. So you've got to put yourself as a solo hunter in a position sometimes where they are forced to come look for you. Yeah, and I think that so the, the important thing is here that you're saying, and maybe I'm just going to put it plainly, is you got to put yourself in the position or in the become the elk. Okay, think about yes. the elk. If I was the elk coming into this area, what could I see? If somebody, if my friend was calling to me over here and I was looking for my friend, what would it? What would I? Where would I go to? Where would I stop? Where would I, you know, how would I enter this area? You know, Mm -hmm. and that putting yourself on the other side of the call has been for me in predator hunting, turkey hunting, calling deer, calling elk. I mean, anything you can think of has changed my success, you know, has definitely upped my success in tenfold uh, because of that. And it's mm-hmm. when I talk about it, when I do predator hunting, um, seminars and 
I even did it when I did an elk hunting seminar a couple of years ago in California. Um, I, I call it creating the room and looking how, what, what do I have to work with terrain wise? What do I have to work with vegetation wise? And where yep. can I put myself where this bull has to come into my effective range? And, and I mean, you said it several different ways and I'm just trying to, you know, no, yeah. Put it in a, in a way that, in a visual, man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, leading up to the hunts now, go out in the woods. I mean, you even want to go out there with a, with a buddy and, and, you know, call to them and have them walk up and then kind of like watch, you know, cause you may not notice this or not, but a human's going to take the path of least, we're going to take the path of least resistance. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. you're, you're going to, uh, do things that other animals are, other animals are going to do things, the same things that you're going to do, I should say more, more than, than yep. the other way around. And it kind of helps you kind of visualize, all right, cool. This is, this is what those guys are talking about. You know, Joe is, is only 40 yards from me and now I can see him and yes, he could see me, but I'm already a full draw and you know, that mm-hmm. kind of scenario. So that, that whole path of least resistance thing, man, is exactly what helped me be successful moving through woods, locating elk during a midday or, you know, um, when they're going to get up and start moving around. I'm, I've never been somebody to wait for them at a destination. I've always been somebody that I want to be in their travel corridors before they ever get to a destination. Mm-hmm. So when I'm moving through areas like that, you know, Elk find the path of least resistance. So by me finding their path, it's making my walk up and down those hills, across those hills. You know, they're going to find the best ways to get through places. If you start bushwhacking on your own and, and stuff like that, you're going to find yourself in some really sucky, you know, mm-hmm. positions at times, man. And, and you're like, how did I get myself in this mess? Had you stayed on the elk trails, you know, you would have actually found much better walking that made a whole lot more sense and actually works the terrain a whole lot better mm-hmm. and gives you those variables in the different terrain. That's how elk move through things without people spotting them all the time. They know how to utilize that terrain and that vegetation, still get through it in path of least resistance, but it gives them where from their head position, they can see into certain areas, down into certain bottoms, over certain ridges, but yet their bodies kind of, hidden from that as they're moving through. So uh, it it's the path to the re- least resistance and funnels, like understanding like how saddles work or how pinch points happen, both with the terrain and, and with um, vegetation creates pinch points as well. I mean, you have these, this horrible thick mess of scrub oak in an area but you've got this one path that kind of leads through it as everything funnels down. Well, man, I mean, that's exactly where those critters and just look at the sign, look at, you know, how they dig that out where the track is. That's exactly where they're going to move through and come through. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a perfect anecdotal, uh, anecdotal story. Mm-hmm. So when I first started hunting mule deer here in, in Arizona, um, my, mentality was still very east coast and one of the things that i found 
was I would go to a burn and I would get on the edge of a burn and find a good, you know, live tree and hang a tree stand. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I would see deer, tons and tons of deer. And finally I started kind of like noticing, well, they're all, they all kind of like move through this, through these burns and these blowdowns a certain way. And then upon, you know, further, uh, inspection, you're like, okay, there's actually like a, like a trail that weaves through here that is like the path of least resistance, the path that's going to mm-hmm. take the least amount of effort and leading. And you find these trails coming into and out of these burns. And that's the way that the, the deer would move. And, you know, so I started setting up on those. And of course I started having deer walk past me consistently. Absolutely. And then mm-hmm. I started noticing I would cut down some deadfall, whatever, and I would put it on adjacent trails. And now those deer, instead of going down those adjacent trails that I couldn't shoot to, they would just come down my trail. Yep. So yeah, it's not, if that, what I'm trying to say here is they, they wanted to go to whatever point A or point B was. And Mm -hmm. they, they got to this and there was an obstruction there. They didn't say, okay, well, I'm a deer. I can just, you know, hop over it all. I could just walk around it, whatever. No, they said, right. instead of using that trail now, they started using this other trail, you know? Right. And it, if that doesn't tell you what we were just discussing, then, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I guess and people, people have, people have to realize that, that, Elk are in survival mode. That whole path of least resistance ha- doesn't have to do with laziness. It has to do with survival. That the less energy they expend, they the less that they built. burn. Right? They are yeah. built and, to conserve energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. so another another thing, you know, what one thing I used to do all the time, a neat trick, and this is it goes to deer hunting, but it works for elk as well. I would walk along a fence line, and you'd find this trail you know, whatever, right along the fence and you just keep walking along the fence and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you come to a low spot and that's where the trail jumps over. Right. A deer mm-hmm. can jump a 10 foot fence, you know, an elk can jump that fence, no problem, but they, they wait till they get to this one spot that's lower to jump because it right. takes less effort. And so I used to pinch the bottom and pinch the top, um, Mm-hmm. strands together so that, okay. you know, it still keep cattle and wouldn't screw with the cattle, but right. it, be- but it became, a, a, and then I gu- mm-hmm. guarantee you, you leave it there like that for a month and there's going to be a trail there because deer start using it. Right. So, yeah. and, and, and elk as well. But, um, you know, I, I was, I was going to say too, uh, probably another thing that, that separates, um, and I don't know if it's any different. It shouldn't be any different. A lot of these aspects and things that I'm talking about as a solo hunter all absolutely apply to, you know, partner hunting. Mm-hmm. You just have to, you know, that, that person on, on, the, on the point, that shooter has to be thinking about those things when he does that, that, that caller is understanding all of this. Yep. But, you know, I, I really continue to utilize like my midday and, and put myself in position where elk are going to be, not where they're not going to be. And I think that's the big thing is people have to understand where elk are wanting to be at certain times of day and put yourself in those positions. Okay, and so let's talk about that. What, where are where, where do elk want to be? Because 
you and I do things like this all the time and people uh-huh. listen to the, and I, and I'm trying not to do this because right. it used to irk the shit out of me. I used to read books and whitetail hunting. I remember reading a buddy, not a buddy, but acquaintance of mine just got done writing a book and he was a fantastic whitetail hunter. And mm-hmm. the book, I read the book cover to cover and I'm going to oversimplify this, but it was like, if you want to kill big, big deer, you got to go with big deer are. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me what yeah, freaking what big deer mean? are. What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I'm yeah. trying to not do this anymore because I feel, I find myself doing it even though it irked the shit out of me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Well, where where is it that elk want to be? So where do they want to be? Number one, re- remember elk are grazers. They mm-hmm. want good grass, right? So if you understand what their food is and their food areas, that's that's something that you have. Where are those occurring? And you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, we're going to sit on water or think about water. I've I've just never done that i've never been able to kill an animal over water mm-hmm. um i i look for water for another reason i look for water because generally where water is especially where it flattens out there's going to be good green grass right so those areas that are more moist that are more shaded that are you know those um smaller little uh bench type little parks and stuff that have real good grass those are attracting those the bottoms are attracting because and when i say bottoms that doesn't mean like I hunt Mesa country and up, you know, a lot of times they'll be on the side, come up to the grass, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where the grass is at. But anytime you have any kind of drainage going down into an area, water is going to drain in that. It's going to hit a point where it flattens out and it's going to create, you know, better grass in those areas. So elk are grazers. They're going to be there. Whether that elk, you know, whether that grass is up on top of the Mesa, whether it's on benches on the side, whether it's, you know, down bottom where it's draining out. Just know where those are because that's where they want to go to. And most of the time, if you do have elevation, they're going to continue down towards the bottoms, right? They're going to get down in there into the best grass that they can find down there. So understand that that's feed, but they are also, they have to have thermal regulation and they have to have um, security. So in that, that's where their bedding areas end up being those dark north, northeast sides or it doesn't even have to be that. It can be some of the thickest areas with the best tree cover. Again, in those mesa areas where we have cuts into it, sometimes they'll just drop off in those cuts, man, because they have better shade in that out of all of their choices. So no matter what type of terrain you're looking at, it's just like where is their best choice to be able to get shade? Shoot, I've seen I've seen a cow elk under the only tree out in this this vast large area of ag and field and prairie, mm-hmm. there's one tree out there, and doggone cow elk is bedded under it because that's the only shade, right? It it wasn't in a north face, it wasn't northeast. It's because that cow had been feeding there and went to the closest shade possible. So you want to think about that. Where are those areas? Because actually, y'all, they're going to spend their time. In the, they've got a daytime bed and they have a nighttime bed. Mm-hmm. They're going to go to a, a, a bed in the area where they're going to be feeding, and then they're going to have a bed that they're going to be during the day where they have security and thermal regulation. All right? So start eliminating other country by looking and saying, yeah, man, this is, man, you can walk through, literally walk through areas and feel the coolness. 
Mm-hmm. And when you feel that coolness, recognize what does that look like? Where is it at? How does it feel? That's the type of area during the day. The hotter it is, the more they're going to be there. The colder it is, the less they're going to be there, and they're going to be someplace else that they can get thermal regulation where they can get sun on them. So all of this combines in no matter what time of year it is. It's about the food. It's about their thermal regulation and their security. And if you think about those, you can put yourself in the transition from one to the other. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, if I hear elk, and it happens all the time. People hear elk, they, they, they run away from you, man. They're like, oh, that they, you know, I'm bugling. So they're running away. That bull's running away because he doesn't want to come. No, he's just following cows up to the bed. Right. But you can hear those bugles go up and go up and go up. And then they end up in an area up there. Well, man, that is that bedding area. And they're going to get up at a certain time of day and they're going to start moving down from that into another feed area. I want to be in that transition during that time. I want to be in those areas between those bedding areas or during midday, I want to be working those bedding areas. I want to be just off of them and I'll put on a scenario of that, especially if I put them to bed. If I put them to bed, just like you roost a a turkey, oh man, I'll let them get in there. I'll let them get some rest for a little bit. Uh, If I hear a bed bugle from a bull on there, man, it's on, man. Now I'm going to... I can control my setup. I can put it on a level so I don't have to worry about the thermals. So I don't have to worry about that animal. You know, I can make it as easy as possible for him to walk into me. And I get to choose the area of my setup instead of, you know, it being so dynamic when I'm chasing one. Mm -hmm. Now I get the opportunity to pull that bull out of that bedding area and come over to me by doing portraying other elk doing elk things, whether it's a breeding sequence or, um, uh, a bull that's been advertising here, but I'm telling you, I'm going to use a breeding sequence. If mm-hmm. I'm on, on them like that, I'm going to give that bull a reason to come over, or I'm going to use, you know, that along with a lost calf or something like that that's going to get that interest and it's going to let me go into that. So, uh, that, that's what I mean by understanding where they, you know, where they're wanting to be at night, where they're wanting to be during the day and where that, those transition points are in between. And that doesn't mean that they won't bed in between there. If you understand those travel corridors, mm-hmm. sometimes you'll kept, catch them bedded right in those travel corridors. Yeah. You yeah. know, they're, they're like, why am I going to waste energy and go all the way up there? I'm fine right here and I'm close to food and yeah. I'm getting good shade. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, I think everything that you just said, I, I put together in my own head. This is 2013 or 20, 2014, 2014. I had a tag here in Arizona and it was that same scenario, um, where I would get on the elk in the morning and they were like utilizing meadows and stuff. And then boom, as soon as it get light, round up, round up bugle and, you know, marching up the mountain gone Mm -hmm. and I would, I kept staying with them, you know, dogging them as much as I could. Obviously they're moving their elk. They're moving way faster than I, I am, sure. but you know, and I started paying attention, like how they were getting there and where they were going to. And then I, st- I was looking at topo. I was looking at, I was like, all right. And then all these pieces of the puzzle started figuring, you know, fallen into place so like how they utilized the land and how they moved across the land and where they were going to and 
um, I didn't end up shooting an elk actually, to be honest with you, but I shot one and I think I've told the story before, but, uh, I ended up hitting him in the ass cause he flipped around. I was using a Montana decoy, um, mm-hmm. and it blew in the wind and it made him jump right as I shot anyway. But, um, basically I got into them with the, with, into their beds with them. On three different occasions. Now, mind you, it was so thick. I was 30 yards from the bull and I could not shoot him. Um, <laughs> Isn't that awesome though? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 this is also connected to another really awesome story. Me, I had two, my cameraman and a buddy of mine and, uh, we were sitting there. It was 26 yards from this bull and I'm just kind of like, wow. every once in a while he'd get up to go run another bull off or something and, we were so close that we couldn't even back out to like rake a tree or do anything. Um, and my buddy's phone started playing music and the whole herd oh, jumps no. up and <laughs> runs away. But we, oh, no. we, and we, we, uh, nicknamed them DJ spec ops, um, at the time <laughs> because he was the only guy wearing sick of it. Um, anyway, but yeah, that's a funny story, but he, uh, anyway, I learned a lot. I learned a lot by following that, following those elk. So, yes, you know, absolutely. you guys want to play the long game here. You know, this may not help you to, to score one this season. I don't know. I mean, unless you have several weeks to hunt, then, you know, it might. Well, get in there and start following those elk, following them. You know, if they're, bu- if they're doing that bugling up to their, right all the way up to their, uh, you know, bedding areas or whatever, and just pay attention to what you're passing and what you're going through and how they're us- utilizing that. And I guarantee you that's going to be the same formula anywhere else you hunt. Cause you, fa- I'm going to take this same scenario just talked about. You fast forward to year 2020. Okay. That's six years later. I'm in a completely different unit, different vegetation type, everything. I have a client and I kept us in elk by looking at my Onyx maps and looking at Topo because every time we would hear them, I was like, okay, they're going to go here. They're going to go here. They're yeah. going to go here. Yeah. And I kept get, getting us to those spots, and eventually my client got one because of that. Right. They weren't they, – well, I, I, I couldn't call a freaking elk in the same my damn life that that year. <laughs> they they would respond to me, but I couldn't get them to come – get them away. So, like mm-hmm. – yeah, it's great to hear elk, but if you want to kill an elk, you know, you got to put yourself in the right positions. And it was my woodsmanship. It was the, I, my knowledge of how they're using the terrain that kept us in them, those elk. And the reason why we yeah. were able to get one. So. Well, not, I, you know, the thing is too, is like when you talk about the, the long game, I, I think there's a lot, I think a lot of people play a short game. I mean, they, they hunt the, the we golden time in the morning, the golden time in the evening, and they don't utilize all of that other time during the day to be able to decipher and to look and to find where those elk are going to and coming from. I mean, there's so much, there should not be any downtime. And like, if you're tired, lay down, take a nap, then get up and get after it. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, you know, you got to eat, got to drink, got to sleep. You know, I, I try to do what the elk are doing when I'm doing that, but there's so much time that other people use as downtime that you can be locating and creating and finding where those animals are. And I'm going to give you something that, that is one of my kind of key visuals. And it's not always this way. It can be doubles. It can be quads or anything like that. But I love 
what I call crow's feet or reverse crow's feet. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, is, is a, a crow's foot would be like where you have a, you know, kind of a main ridge, you know, a, a hill that, that it has like three drainages as it comes down to kind of split off and they, you know, those crow's feet, each one of those drainages would be the toe, right? Yep. With a ridge in between, you know, like that. Um, because generally what they, those areas do is they get smaller at the top and you'll end up with elk that are working those ridges or in between and where those good grass are and those drainages, they start working up to that and everything gets closer at the top. And they're usually working the, what I call the knuckles up there mm-hmm. because it's easy to cross and go across and they all, and you can end up with different herds that'll end up in the same area because everything gets smaller at the top. Well, you take the reverse crow's foot and it's just the opposite of that. You've got drainages that crow's foot is actually coming, each one of those drainages is coming from, you know, up high and coming down into one mm-hmm. drainage, right? Yep. So you, you've got a different type of ridge formation. It's just the opposite of that where, man, that bottom area again becomes a congregation type area there. And those elk will work across those ridges as they're getting down lower, you know, down there as, as it starts to come down. They're going to use those finger ridge to feed down into that. So there's, there's so, um, those types of areas really attract me because anytime I have multiple drainages that join into one mm-hmm. that come to a point, to a pinch point, I love that kind of area. And I don't care if it's four drainages, two drainages sometimes. It just depends on the makeup of the hill, but you can see it in reverse, um, and, and the other way. And both of those give you a different type of advantage if you locate, if you see it and understand it. So, like I was, we were going, um, we were actually driving, we had hauled, uh, had to pack out an elk, and we had had it in the truck, and we were driving down a road in this new area that we were going through to take this elk um, back into camp. And as I'm driving, I look off to my left, and I look up there, and there is two huge, like, protrusion of mountain coming out that came out to two different peaks one if i was to hold my hands out i could put my right hand on one looking at it my left hand on one looking at it and in between in between were three drainages that fed down from those i ended up with a ridge in the middle and kind of coming down from each one of those mounds and then going up to a ridge in the middle and came down to a main one and as I did that, I could see the steps. I could see the benches of aspen in there. Mm-hmm. And it was real steep, except for you could see these benches. And each one of those had creeks coming down them. And I was like, holy crap, man, there's going to be elk in there. We were in there the next morning. Sure enough, man, multiple bulls in there because it was perfect. It had the water. It had the benches. It had the grass down at the bottom. even had grass in those areas there that were hitting sun. So, mm-hmm. um you know, you just see that it it becomes you you start to recognize those elk magnets. Right, right. I uh, I wanted to ask you this earlier when we were kind of talking about setup, and then I forgot to, and it just dawned on me that mm-hmm. I didn't ask you. So one one, and selfishly, I'm asking this because I've always had an uh, a problem with this type of situation. And we see this a lot here in Arizona and especially in a couple of units that, that we hunt where the terrain 
yes, we're at high elevation, you know, seven, 8,000 feet higher elevation. I shouldn't say high elevation. Um, but it's kind of like a big plateau. So it's fairly, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of elevation change. And right. when you're at that elevation, you're in ponderosas and ponderosas. If you've ever been in the understory is very clear. You can see for underneath so, of them. Yes. For absolutely. Ways, yeah. 150 it's a lot yards. like our Gila. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 150 yards, 200 yards. No problem. Right. So mm-hmm. it kind of lends itself to this very, um, it's very difficult to solo hunt in that situation. And, um, and you know, it's, it's even hard to, to buddy hunt, but you can get away with it cause you can have somebody drop back really far, you know, especially if you have a decoy. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what kind of suggestions are you making to, to guys like that? And I, I know, uh, I know well, my cousin Anthony actually has a tag in, in this very unit that I'm thinking of that has a lot of this going on. What, well, what... I, the, I, I know where you're going with them. And the problem is with us as callers, we always feel like we have to call everything in. We're in that type of situation. And it depends. I mean, if you got multiples like that, it can become really, really hard. But especially in those big ponderosas where it's open and you can spot, a lot of times you can – you know, you can get a spot in stock on that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and utilize that even better, um, to get in there. Um, and I would utilize that a lot. Just really, it's hard because even though it seems like it's flat terrain, you're still going to have little rolls in it, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not going to be, am I right? Or is it just flat, flat? <sighs> you know, there are, there definitely are spots that have the rolls and, you know, when, when that's available. We're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna utilize that for sure, but I mm-hmm. just I I've, I I can think of probably ten times right now, right off the top of my head, where you get in this situation where you could see 180 yards and right, you know, and now the trees are fairly close together, so yes, you could kind of go tree to tree real slow and cut some of that mm-hmm. distance, but then you're still gonna get to a spot where. Either I, I gotta hope this guy's gonna come to me, or I gotta call him a little bit closer to me. Yeah. No. So I, I'm not doing anything though. I mean, if, if I'm seeing them at 180, I'm just shadowing them until they put themselves in a better situation for me to mm-hmm. do what I need to do. And they're going to do that. They're going to get some place where it's a little bit thicker. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like elk out in open country. It, it's hard to really call elk in in open country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more of a spot and stock type thing. But it, and it can be done using the, especially using the elevations. And I like decoys myself. I mean, I would absolutely in that situation throw a decoy on uh, ultimate predator on the front of my bow, and and I would I would have to try that just because I love trying to do things like that. So I would actually have to try that and see what I could do with that decoy on the front of my bow, pulling them into me. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I didn't have something like that and it's not in a good situation, I'm being patient because they're going to, ch- the situation is going to change and they're going to end up in an area where it's going to become more feasible for me to actually, because at that point in time, yeah, I'm seeing them at 180, but it's not going to be that way the whole time. Right. So I'm just going to shadow them until they get themselves in a better position in something thicker or where there's a change of terrain that gives me an, you know, a better opportunity to use my skill set. 
you know, at that point in time, they are in a commanding skill set at that point in time. They've got their eyes. They should be able to see, you know, they've got the wind, you know, they, and whatever they hear, they should be able to see it. So they're in a commanding point. Mm-hmm. You've got to wait until that changes. And that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just shadowing them at that point until I get a better position. Yeah. Yeah. So like last year I, I was in Colorado. I had this other situation and I've, I've ran across this a couple times and I've had mixed, mixed success with it, but I'll paint the picture for you. So we, we get up to this bench, a very large bench area, um, or flat spot, I should say that really, I guess it can't really be considered a bench if it was as big as it is. It was aspen trees, uh, for about 30 yards flat and then it went uphill towards the mountain. Had about 60 yards of open meadow and then aspen trees that I was in that was flat and kind of sloped back away from me, um, mm-hmm. gradually. And I basically got on the edge of the aspen trees and that bull was laying, laying down in the aspen trees just as it started going uphill. So I didn't want mm-hmm. to cross the meadow because I had a feeling he would mm-hmm. be able he'd be able to see me. Uh, mm-hmm. I and that meadow was so long in both directions that a really uh, in hindsight now that I think about it I probably could have went to the right far enough to get around and get in the trees on the same side as him but that's probably what mm-hmm. I should have did. But I didn't do that anyway. So I have this very long strip of wide open meadow now. Mm-hmm. I started calf calling. The bull comes down, comes out of the trees, comes into the meadows, comes out. Stop. Halfway into the meadow and stops. And he's looking mm-hmm. into the trees that I'm in. Doesn't see anything. Starts walking back towards the, towards the trees. I mm-hmm. called behind me. You know, I turned and called behind me. He turns around and he comes back to the same spot. Mm-hmm. And I can't go forward anymore. And now as I'm calf calling and he's kind of went back to the tree line, but never really went into the trees and just kind of walked back and forth. A cow comes out from my right all the way to the right. And she comes across the whole meadow and comes to 30 yards away from 30 yards away from me. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, Oh, well, here we go. Cow in front of me. The bull's going to come over to mm-hmm. the cow. Perfect I'm gonna decoy. Get, yeah. Yes. I'm going to yeah. get a shot. Well, that never happened. And at the same time, what time? What time of year was it? This, this was heart in the heart of the rut. <laughs> it was last year, oh, September. Wow. And well, I mean, another give you a little bit more to the puzzle. I was with Jermaine Hodge, and he mm, had okay. dro- he had dropped back behind me mm-hmm. in the trees and dropped down. You know, like I said, it slipped away, and then it kind of dropped off. You know, probably lost like 20 feet of elevation or not maybe that, maybe mm-hmm. not that much, but 15 feet of elevation. And he was down below me probably, I don't know, 80 yards or more back, back behind me, maybe more than that. And he was calling. He was cow calling. So I shut up. And the only thing that I can come up with is that I should have never made any sounds to begin with and I should have just let him. Yeah, absolutely. Work, work, work is that, magic, but yeah, um, yeah. Or and that, you they, know, if if I just, was, 
it ended up getting dark and they went away. <laughs> you know, yeah. we ended up slipping it back hate, out of there. And I hate racing in the dark. But if I if I was in that situation like that too, especially if you're close to that edge, yeah, that's absolutely bull going to lock up on the other side. You're just going to wait for you to show yourself. But I, I think I would have actually dropped deeper off mm-hmm. um, away from myself and then just started doing – you know, some glunking and some pants and uh, and a little bit of some buzzing going on back there really sound like a, a situation where there was a hot cow with a bull in there and, mm-hmm. you know, even sound like a frustrated bull. Something that's going to tell him that there's a, you know, there's a breathing situation happening that's going to give him more interest than just a cow, you know, because evidently he wasn't, I mean, he's by himself solo. How big was this bull by himself solo? In the um, oh, he's probably right about 300. Yeah, hmm. and he wasn't. He wasn't Which, a young bull. He was a six by six, good looking yeah. bull. Yeah, and that when that cow, yeah. when that cow came to me, and she turned around and she went back, almost the way she came. He went to her, and when you know, sent checked her, but um, she mm-hmm. wasn't. She must have not have been hot because he ended up walking back away from her. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There was nothing to keep him. It's like, yeah, there's nothing hot here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if you to give him something, you could have even done it way off and done the glunking and. And, and the panting and a little bit of some buzz back there, you know, really put on a little bit of a show and then moved up forward from that to try to see if you can get him coming across into the trees. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're at the edge and he comes through, he's expecting you to be there, but you might be able to back off and try to do that and to get it off back there. You know, uh, it, he's got to have, you've got to go to something that's really going to tell him to come there. The other thing you could have done is, I don't know if it would have worked in that situation. He was pretty, pretty solo already the way it is. That's what I would have gone with, man. I'd have really tried to raise his interest with a type of breeding sequence and a lot of vocals and glunks that sound like a bull tending down there mm-hmm. and making some racket with my feet like there's some cows and doing some buzz. Give him that type of image so that he's going to drop off and come down there to go see what he can see yeah i i felt like once i got to where i was i really couldn't move i couldn't back up yeah unless he was walking away from me and then i kind of had a little bit of but um, yeah you didn't have enough no yeah because in my mind's eye i said this guy's going to come across the meadow and he's going to stop somewhere in the meadow and i thought Mm -hmm. it was going to be within my range and at one mm-hmm, point right, I had yeah. him at 80 yards, but I'm not taking it in. He was head on. So right. I was like, I'm not no, taking good, an 80 yard, for you. 80 yard head yeah. on shot, you know? Um, right. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. If he was broadside at 80, I probably would have taken it, but, <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, there's just some of those, you know, there's some of those hands that were dealt that were basically, you know, just trying to do something to make something happen for us. And mm-hmm. and we know that the odds are already against us when we do it. Yeah. But if we don't do anything, we don't have, you know, the only other thing you could have done was just sat there all day until he got up and started moving again. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, well, you were in the evening already. Yeah. We, I, I knew yeah. I had about 45 minutes you yeah. know, before it was going to be too dark. And we literally, we, he, he stuck there the whole time. Like he never. Wow. He never went further than 125 yards from me. Never got closer than 80. Uh, so like he just stayed in this, like this limbo land of where I couldn't, where I couldn't get him. And, um, yeah. So, and I just felt like if I got up, cause I, you know, 
it, it was Aspens, but it wasn't like super, super thick. It was somewhat sparse. Like if I get mm-hmm. up, right. Mm-hmm. He's going to see me. And I was sitting mm-hmm. down like in between some deadfall and like I had a great like position if he did come to the, you know, anywhere near the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That's, it's always a tough one. And, and you end up trying to do something to force the issue, you know, with that. And, and you have to. You gotta at least give yourself an opportunity. So you try to find something that's gonna work. There is no silver bullet in that situation. You're just kinda of trying to play what you're given and see if there's any way that you can pique his interest. And, yeah. you know, it didn't happen that time, man. It wasn't his day to die. No, no, like you said, a bitch. It wasn't any elk's day to die last year in Colorado for me. I, I, I missed, I missed twice on an elk in, 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 uh, in the fog. My damn rangefinder kept giving me the wrong range. Oh no! Oh yeah, fog is terrible. They remember oh, that, yeah. guys. Remember that, and I knew yep. it too. I said, "There's no way he's that close. There's no way." Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Anyway, well, man, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, oh, sharing absolutely. your knowledge. It's always this. fun, John. Yeah. Yes. Always fun. I agree. We got to. You and I got to hunt together one of these years, like before. You know, that, you know, I, absolutely, man. And more of that needs to happen. You need to get out of these offices and get out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Absolutely. All right. Well, you got anything going on that you, uh, you want to let the listeners know about or, uh, you know, um, the Elk Bro Soloist, we just started selling this this year. I'm so excited with it because I've always used a flex tube, mm-hmm. um, uh, a nod to Wayne Carlton and his old mega tube. We did that, but, you know, did it for years just because of what we did to be able to kill elk. I mean, I truly believe that that's a huge advantage to be able to throw calls behind you. It's been proof in the pudding for me. And, uh, but the only issue with it was, you know, it, it didn't have some of the reverb in the sound chamber and there was no real back pressure with an inch and a half mouthpiece. Right. So I've kind of hybrid it and done a little bit different type thing, put a little, you know, better chamber on the front of the idea. And, uh, and I'm just thrilled to death with it. And I cannot wait to, you know, see people out there. John, just, you know, when we were growing up and using, you know, Wayne stuff and Larry D. Jones stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, Primo's and all, all, you know, you just, you looked at those guys like, man, you know, those are people that, that did things that help you get it done. And just to even, remotely think that somebody could be out there in the woods with my soloist and, and bring a bull in and, and be successful. It just gives me chills, man. It's just, awesome. um, it, it just, uh, people don't understand what that really means. And, you know, if they're doing it with our, our calls, man, with our grinder and our, our sugar, man, that's just, it's like, I don't know what to say, man. It's just so exciting. I mean, I'm really enjoying that. We're me and the crew, we're heading out, um, the 23rd, of August, we're heading to Canada. The Elk Bros crew will be hunting with the Wapiti River crew in Canada. Hmm. We'll be hunting elk and moose. It's going to be a little early season, a little challenging, but hey, man, I'm I'm just loving it. Then we come back to New Mexico and we're putting on our our uh, Elk Bros uh, coached camps here, where we're actually you know we have people that have purchased coached hunts that they're getting us boots on the ground with them, not guiding, has nothing to do with guiding. It's all coaching, and we've been actually coaching them and hunt wars guys now for two months already um using zoom so uh yeah, we got a lot of cool things happening man we're real, real excited about that and our 200th episode 
we're going live um, next uh, next Wednesday, the 16th, on our 200th episode of Blue Collar Congrats. Congrats. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks, man. That's awesome. All right, buddy. Well, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, thanks for all you do. Go, guys, go check out Elk Bros and check out what uh, Joe's got going on over there, Joe and the boys. And uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Yep. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out daysinthewild.com, and be sure to give us an, a review on iTunes. Thank you, and we'll check you out on the next episode.